0: Just so you know, today I am going to be more explicit in step two. This, I, I want to try and avoid teaching too much science, uh, just like I tried to avoid teaching too much philosophy, but there is a certain level of uh, scientific knowledge that's sort of presupposed. So I'm going to be sketching stuff in and it will be pretty sketchy. Uh, we're covering everything from cosmology to biology to genetics in you know thirty to forty minutes uh the You can look at the book if you want a little deeper level, although that too is a sketch and then if you really want to follow the trail down the rabbit hole, you can look at some of the resources in the footnotes. Um, I wanted to mention this uh it it sounds like so far uh, that it's been a lot of abstract philosophy and science and there's a reason for that is because it has been a lot of abstract science and philosophy but it really is making what you might call metaphorically the miraculous more explicit and that I really do believe that uh, God's presence is made aware to us in tokens around us. And I'll just give the examples I've used. A starry night sky speaks God's glory. Today, uh, a beautiful seashell you might find on the beach. I did not find this one on the beach. I, I bought this one. Uh, you, you have to go to, uh, I think, uh, the Indian Ocean or at least the Pacific Ocean to get that one. And so I bought it at a seashell. seashell. Yeah, easy for me to say, seashell shop by the seashore. Um, and, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I, I, I want to say, like, a journey is a well-worn metaphor about life, but it's not really worn out. And, and so there's a, there's a journey quality to this. Anyway, so uh, life is a journey. I know that's well-worn, and, and so is, in a sense, apologetic. So it, it, it's like we're just starting out on, on the seashore under a starry night, but eventually the, the path leads upward uh, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the salvation made evident uh, through uh, what happened in history when God became an actor in history and how that has been recorded in Scripture and is now proclaimed in the Gospel. So that's where we're going. But along the way, there are things that everybody can know, and as a matter of fact, everybody does know. Uh, I I believe the arguments for God at one level are simply reminders. We already talked the first session about why everyone even thinks about God, because everyone does think about God. And I think there really is a, a sense of divinity, the sensus divinitatis that Calvin spoke of, that everyone deep down knows that God exists. He has not left himself uh, without a witness in in the very depths of our being. But there are also things that can make this more explicit. And that's what we've been talking about in the cosmological argument. And today I'm going to talk about the argument from design Can I get this Oh, that worked. So uh, I want to ask today, how does the appearance of design in the universe show that God is there? And the word appearance is deliberate. <clears throat> design does appear, but is it appearance only? Uh, so we'll talk about that. So everybody has what you could call a design intuition. Now again, I, I admit I did not find this seashell on the seashore, but I have found others. It's just most of the interesting ones i found are quite small, like a wintel trap. There's a little illustration of a wintel trap in your book. Fascinating little shell, and I have lots of small ones. This is a nautilus shell. Nautilus is a a shelled creature with uh, lots of tentacles uh, coming out that propels itself with those slowly through the water. And obviously, this has been cut through the middle to display the chambers. This is the way the Nautilus grows. This spiral, uh, and I won't go through the mathematical details because I forget them anyway, uh, is what's called a golden spiral. A golden spiral is based on what's called a golden rectangle. The sides of a golden rectangle are based on a ratio called the golden ratio. So the ratio of the side to the longer length of the rectangle forms a ratio called phi, not as well known as the ratio pi, and also I don't remember it out to as many decimal places. So phi is approximately 1.6, and it is a ratio found in a lot of things in nature. This is actually going to be one of the last things I get to about the mathematical structure of of reality, of physical reality. And when we find things like this, you won't find it quite like that, but at some point one of them was exposed and somebody realized that design was in there and now they're commercially sliced and sold. Um, We all have a design intuition. And when we see purpose or intention in something, we, we infer design. We're naturally inclined to say, well, somebody made that, not that it was formed by random chance or accident. Now, sometimes our intuition can be wrong, else the the word counterintuitive never would have been uh, coined. But sometimes it's so obvious that we don't doubt it. Uh, Notre Dame Cathedral partially burned a while ago, and all France was up in arms, and now they're thrilled that they're going to be rebuilding it. Um, And that's because this is not only a national treasure, but one could say a remnant or a reminder of transcendence that the French people are loath to forget, even though back in the French Revolution they officially rejected God. And so it's going to be rebuilt. And no one doubts that Notre Dame Cathedral was designed and built that way. It has all the earmarks of craftsmanship design, architecture, and artistry. Um, and the question is, is can, we, can we see in nature and the things that we see in nature design that bespeaks a designer, a creator, an artist? And the short answer is yes, and if that were the only thing, then, then I'd be done, but I'm going to be more explicit again. So we see what we take as design in nature. This is, this is a uh, picture by Jan Bruegel the Elder, who was a sixteenth, late 16th, early 17th century Northern Renaissance painter. And it's a profusion of living things and creatures, and it's a story. This is... Uh, the Garden of Eden and the Fall of Adam and Eve, you can see, I mean, it's like right way there in the background. Uh, you can see Adam and Eve in there being tempted, but you can also see this buzzing, blooming profusion of life. Um, and And we would say, well, all that stuff looks designed, the trees, the individual trees, the landscape, the birds... Uh, The uh, leopards, I think those are leopards. The horse, all these things were designed and created by God. And that's what the story says. Um, Nonetheless, there are people who are materialists, you could say, and and, uh, materialist evolutionists would say, no, that's only the appearance of design. Those things do not have what is called teleology, so the design argument is also called the teleological argument. It comes from the Greek word "telos," which means end, but not end with simply meaning a finish, but end meaning a goal towards which something is directed. So uh, materialists and others are going to deny that there is any actual design in the living world. So. Francis Crick, who along with James Watson was the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, he wrote this uh, in his book. He wrote, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed but rather evolved. Now he doesn't say it explicitly, but why would biologists must constantly keep in mind that it's not designed and constantly tell themselves it's not designed because the things we see in biology do look designed even Richard Dawkins said in the blind watchmaker biology is the study of things in nature that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose so even materialists and evolutionists have a design intuition But then they deny that that intuition is correct. So they would say, well, when you look at nature, you don't really see a Jan Bruegel. What you see is a Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock, and I'm not saying I dislike all of his art, and he has an interesting history, um, which, as Many artists' stories go ended sadly, but I won't. I won't digress there. Uh, this is an untitled painting here. It's typically titled "Green and Silver," not surprisingly, because the prime colors in here are green and silver. But Pollock was famous in his later work for trying to remove the artist's atten- intention from his work. So he wanted to create something that was the result of chance and necessity. And I'm gonna use that word a lot, but I'm not gonna define it right now. And so he would just throw and drip and splatter painting uh, willy-nilly everywhere. Sometimes he would even do things like hang a bucket of paint from the ceiling, poke a hole in it, and then swing it back and forth just to try and remove the idea Or remove his intention or his purpose or his teleology from the painting so then in effect nature would speak now he didn't always express it that precisely and that abstractly but that was in fact he was doing but you know oddly and ironically enough this actually is an intelligently designed painting so everything about it is contrived even the the sort of randomness looking at it but those Evolutionists and materialists who deny that you can see the hand of God in nature would say, no, it is not designed. It was not made with any goal in mind. Evolution does not see the future, they would say, and that you may think when you look at nature, you're looking at a Jan Bruegel, but you've got to tell yourself over and over and over and over again, no, you're not, you're looking at a Jackson Pollock. And I will say, no, you're not. You really are looking at it, Jan Bruegel when you look at nature. And so I'm going to become even more explicit. That's an analogy. And analogies aren't always arguments, and some of them are good, and some of them aren't. So the design argument goes like this. Purpose and design are the result of the actions of an intelligent agent. No one actually doubts that. So if you see things which you know are designed, Notre Dame, high-performance NASCAR engine, a chair, something that clearly had some human craftsman behind it, you you can infer design, and even atheists will infer design on a human level. So purpose and design are the result of the actions of an intelligent agent. This no one doubts. So premise one is (coughs) non-controversial. Premise two, though, the universe as a whole and living things within the universe exhibit the characteristics of purpose and design. Now, that is controversial. So, atheists, uh, biological evolutionists are going to say, what you think is design is actually the result of random chance, just Accidental combinations of molecules and atoms and necessity. Necessity here means the uh, inexorable and unavoidable outcomes of the laws of nature. So if I were to drop something, my wife is worried that I'm going to drop my water all over my electronics here. And not without reason. I am accident prone. But it will inevitably fall. Gravity will that down and there's nothing you can do about it except pray for a miracle. And of course I would say God could stop the water from falling but normally he wouldn't intervene like that. So an atheist would say natural law must and will happen as it does. It is necessary and the outcomes are unavoidable. The outcomes are also predictable and we know a high degree right now, the regularities of nature. And they will say that both the origin of life and the profusion of life, including the origin of species, came about not through the hand of God, but by chance and necessity. So we'll come back to that. But the conclusion is that the purpose and design in the universe are the result of an intelligent agent or designer, which is God. Now again, this is a valid logical argument. If premise one and premise two are true, then therefore the conclusion must be true. So number one is uncontroversial. Number two is going to be denied and counter-argued against by people who don't want to reach conclusion three. So we're going to look carefully at number two. The universe as a whole and living things within the universe exhibit characteristics of purpose and design. This is shown by, and this is where I do have to get into science some, the fine-tuning of the universe for life, the irreducible complexity within living cells, genetic information within living cells, failure of chance and necessity to explain the origin of life, and then one of these things that's not like the other, but sort of underlies all of them, the mathematical structure of the universe. Now, each of them by themselves has been made into an argument in design. I think they form a very powerful cumulative argument to the best explanation, it's called. Considering what all these things mean... The best explanation is an intelligent designer. So we'll look at each one of these in turn, and very briefly. Again, there's a little more detail in the book. And then if you want even more detail, you can follow the trail in the footnotes. So the fine tuning of the universe is this. And I have a short video clip. Fine-tuning refers to the fact that even very small changes in any one of the known physical constants of the universe would mean that life would not be possible. We are balanced on a razor's edge, so to speak.
1: From galaxies and stars down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, No life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body, or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. No stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant. A change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly, or too slowly. In either case, the universe would, again, be life-prohibiting. Or another example of fine-tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of 1 part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these, and many other numbers, have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge.
0: Uh, There are varying estimates of how many of those fine-tuning constants there was made. There's at least 40. In other words, there are uh, forces and constants in the universe that that are expressed through mathematical expressions that must have certain very specific values. And these values have to be found experimentally. You can't find them in the equations of the laws. You have to verify them through careful experimentation. So the fine-tuning of the universe cannot be explained by chance or a multiverse theory either. So the idea is that, well, sure, it, it was a rare event, but here we are. So in effect, we won the cosmic lottery. There actually is a book... Uh, which disputes the idea called the cosmic jackpot that we just won a great lottery. The problem with that is uh, the misunderstanding of how it would be like a lottery. It would be like um, a, a lottery selection in which there are 1 times 10 to the 10 to the 123rd which is a number so large that if every proton in the universe had a digit on it you would not have enough to actually write this number out, so and this is this is by an estimate by uh, a mathematician scientist by the name of Roger Penrose, who wrote a book called The Emperor's New Mind. Uh, this this is not a, a creationist, uh, or to my knowledge, even a Christian. Although I don't believe he's an atheist. So the possibility is that you have these many balls, and you've got one chance to select the right ball. So there is one in one times 10 to the 123rd chances that you will get a life-permitting universe on that basis. There's actually, I think, a better probability example, and that's this one. Imagine you came into, uh, if you know the physics of balancing pencils on their point, you know that it can be described, but it is actually impossible. So if you came into a room and you saw on a hard surface table a pencil finely balanced on its point and not moving, you would rightly be suspicious of what was going on behind that. But it's not even like one pencil, it's like at least 40 of them balanced finely on a point point and not falling. So all these points have to be finely balanced, or we don't get life in this universe. So that's the fine-tuning argument. An attempt to get around this, uh, to sort of overcome the idea that chance won't make it possible, is the so-called multiverse or multiple universe theory. Um, I am not sure if this theory was developed simply for the sole purpose of getting around the fact that the standard Big Bang model points to the beginning of the universe and there being only one universe but a lot of people use it to that effect. So the problem with the multiverse theory is there is no scientific evidence for a multiverse. It generates a lot of elegant mathematics But no experimental protocols. There is not even in theory a way to detect or prove another universe other than the one we're currently in. But it does seem to, and I will say seem to, avoid this idea that we couldn't have just gotten lucky because we've only got one universe. If you have a nearly infinite number of universes, well, some will be life-permitting and some won't, and we just happen to be in the one that's life-permitting. But the problem with that, again, it's, it's not actually science. It's metaphysics with math added, and it doesn't actually avoid the problem because, after all, who designed the multiverse? Ultimately, where did the multiverse come from? and who put in those parameters within the multiverse. So that doesn't really avoid the question of the fine-tuning of the universe. So the best explanation for the top fine-tuning of the universe is a fine-tuner or designer, or is uh, not really an atheist, not really an agnostic. I'm not sure what Fred Hoyle ended up being. Um, Fred Hoyle was the guy who termed Uh, who coined the term Big Bang to derisively refer to the theory of the early uh, expansion of the universe that we now know as the Big Bang Theory. He meant it uh, as an insult. Uh, But he eventually came to the conclusion that the physics for life was so finely tuned, he said somebody must have monkeyed with it. That was his term, monkeyed with it. So he believes that the universe is inherently intelligent, and I'm not actually sure what he means by that. But that he, he has actually a book called The Intelligent Universe. Irreducible complexity within living cells is another thing that points to design. So Michael Behe, who wrote a book back in 1996 called Darwin's Black Box. It says, by irreducibly complex, I mean a single system composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function. The basic non-biological example is this, just to get across the idea of irreducible complexity. So a mouse trap has five parts (coughs) with a function, well, it doesn't really trap mice, just so you know. Um, It crushes them. (laughs) So a mouse crusher uh, has five parts. If any one of those parts is missing or not functioning, this thing cannot perform its function. This is an example of a non-biological, irreducibly complex system. Um, and, and whatever you might have heard or read, it's, it's like... It's like um, Mark Twain's statement that reports of his death have been greatly exaggerated. Uh, Attempts have been made to show how this really isn't uh, irreducibly complex or that it could not have been explained by evolution. Uh, But they actually fail. Same thing with this. This is virtually the icon of irreducible uh, complexity because Michael Behe described it in detail. This is the bacterial flagellum. Uh, Down in the lower left corner is an actual electron micrograph showing the mechanism, which is about 40 to 50 uh, different uh, proteins forming what is, in effect, a small rotary engine in a cell that spins a whip-like tail at about 100 000, and some bacteria, about 100,000 uh, RPMs, which is really fast, and then it can stop and rotate in the other direction. E. coli, uh, you wonder why E. coli were so dangerous. E. coli right up in the... There we go. Uh, right up in the corner here. Uh, have uh, several flagella. So, this is the flagellum motor right here. And I have a short video clip just showing how that operates. Uh, first part is the actual bacteria, and the second is a schematic. So, there are those cute little bacteria swimming around. This is animated. But it is an accurate animation. This really is very well-established biochemistry at the molecular level. This is, this is how a bacterial flagellal motor actually operates. Well, without the background music. <laughs> and it actually goes much, much faster than that. And it's actually constructed in much the way you see here. So it has a, if you know anything about uh, electric motors, it has a rotor, it has a stator, it has bushings, and then it has the propeller, which is the hair-like object sticking out the top. And this is the picture of the uh, electron micrograph of it. So this is a biological example of an irreducibly complex system. Again, attempts to say that this is not irreducibly complex have failed, and that's about all I can say now. Um, the, the significance of this is that irreducibly complex systems cannot be explained by the result by the result of gradual Darwinian processes. Uh, those processes say that everything evolved in a step-by-step fashion through genetic mutations, that's chance, which cause slight changes in an organism through natural selection. That's the necessity. In other words, supposedly natural selection is, is law-like. Now, that's debatable, but for now, we'll just say it is. And it preserves any of those changes that confer on the organism. So supposedly, the story is that we started with very simple... And you've got to put that in air quotes. Very simple single-cell organisms. Because they're already unbelievably complex. And we'll come back to that. And in very stepwise fashion, advanced to, to complicated systems like us. The problem with this... And I can only just barely describe it is that an irreducibly complex system like many systems you you can't build it slowly and then have it working all along the way now there is a counter counter argument to this by evolutionists but i i can't go into that right now but the idea is that that Something had some other function other than its ultimate function that eventually turned into the function that it now has. But this is not an argument. It's really just a just-so story. If you're familiar with Rudyard Kipling's just-so story, the only one I always remember is how the elephant got its trunk. And it really isn't an explanation Uh, The elephant got its trunk because a very young elephant started playing around the water and an alligator grabbed his nose and yanked it out. Just so you know, that's how the elephant got his trunk. They used to just have little snub nose. Uh, Evolutionary stories are like that. Um, So evolution cannot explain the irreducibly complex nature of this system or many other micromolecular systems within inside a cell. So the best explanation for such irreducible complexity is intentional and purposeful design, not chance and necessity. Again, this is a sketch. The book does go into more detail. Uh, genetic information within living cells. Again, I'll have to give a little bit of background in biochemistry. Within every living cell, genetic information is encoded in the DNA molecule. This information, instructs the cell how to construct proteins from 20 amino acids and proteins perform most most of those functions that happen within the cell so in in a nucleus of a cell you have chromosomes chromosomes are tightly wound strands of DNA and DNA is made out of base pairs uh, which are adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. Adenine always matches with thymine, guanine, with cytosine And these unravel and are copied in a process called transcription and then in a very complicated process called translation. They uh, take the amino acids uh, within the cell and create proteins out of them, which is in itself a rather complex process. So the information theory is very complicated, but for our purposes here, the best definition of information, it is that it is the attribute inherent in and communicated by alternative sequences or arrangements of something that produces specific effects. Software code is like this and the specific, you can see some of the specific effects on the screen here. Now, software code is ultimately ones and zeros and it's telling the pixels on the screen to arrange itself according to this pattern. But so is an alphabet. Every time you read a book, you are reading encoded information. And if you can read, you're decoding it. So that's the best definition right? for this. There are other understandings of what it is. And this we can say, and, and again, the background of this is in the book. What can you say about information in general that, that points to a designer? Well, first of all, the information carrier itself does not have to possess intelligence or consciousness. DNA doesn't know it's carrying information, but neither does a book. Neither does your phone. You might know you can carry information, but information can be carried by a non conscious media. Information is non material, it is not any form of matter or energy. Um, unlike matter and energy, information can be created and destroyed. So if I had, I use the example in the book, if I, if I, Take Scrabble letters and write out, there is God with them. And then I, uh, that conveys a message. It's gone from my mind through those letters to your mind. But then I take those letters and I shake them around and throw them on the floor. That won't damage Scrabble letters. The matter is not destroyed in any way. They are not damaged. But the information has gone. So information, you wouldn't call it spiritual, but you would call it non-material. Specified information, the kind that's encoded into a computer language or an alphabet, cannot be generated by chance and or necessity. The monkeys typing, producing the works of Shakespeare, they've actually calculated the odds about that, and actually it's impossible, just so you know specified information only originates from an intelligent source or mind. And so the best explanation for the genetic information within DNA is the action of an intelligent designer. I actually read an article in the journal of uh, online Journal of Philosophy that says well perhaps we should get around this metaphor they call it of genetic information because just saying genetic information implies that someone's putting that information into the genetic code. Well, yeah, it does, because someone is. And so wanting to not use the term information is just a form of denial, really. Uh, The failure of chance and necessity to explain the origin of life. This gets really complicated, so I'm going to be even more sketchy right here. And by sketchy, I I don't mean in a moral sense, just going to be sketchy. So there's a lot of different materialistic evolutionist theories for the origin of life. All of them say that somehow or another, matter acting under natural law will spontaneously generate a living organism. And sometimes the analogy is used, and sometimes even experiments are done trying to show how it could have arisen through the way that a snowflake might crystallize. Now, it is true that a snowflake will form from chance and necessity. Now, as far as the mathematics that describes it, we'll talk about that in a minute. But under the right conditions, a drop of water will freeze into a snowflake. You don't need any intervention, uh, and and although it's pretty, it, it doesn't really bespeak purpose or intent of a designer in a very direct way. I mean, it does, but it's in the underlying mathematics of the structure. So they will say that, well, this is how life originally formed. The problem with that is that even so-called simple life is extremely complicated and already consists of a number of irreducibly complex subsystems. This is not necessarily the simplest cell, but this is a non-nucleated, a prokaryotic bacterial cell that already has a number of complicated subsystems in it. And so every life has, every form of life, no matter how simple, has to maintain itself against the environment, it has to metabolize energy, and it has to reproduce, and these are already complicated processes. And in this diagram, the flagellal motor, which we saw is very, it's just this little dot right here. So, you know, this this would have to fill basically the whole side of the gem to really get at the detail that's on a a nano level here. So to say that this somehow crystallized through chance and necessity makes no sense. And as a matter of fact, there really is no current viable scenario, you know, the warm little pond, uh, uh, the life-forming uh, and crystal instructions underground, uh, that actually explains how life originated from non-living matter. There, there's no compelling explanation. Uh, although there's a lot of sub- supposed experiments that show this, uh, a lot of hand-waving arguments, but I, I won't take the time to go into those right now. Last thing, which sort of underlines, underlies everything else, is the mathematical structure of the universe. The best explanation for the mathematical regularities we observe in the universe is a God who imposes these regularities by creating the laws of nature. Now, I think it's not illegitimate to call them laws, Because they are regularities, and unless someone who stands above them uh, counteracts or moves against or contravenes these laws, they do happen according to necessity. So what goes up must come down, uh, unless it's going at escape velocity, and then a different law will describe that. So why is it that the universe can be described by these laws? Eugene Wigner, who was an atheist mathematician, wrote a famous article called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. And in this, he in effect said he was what was called a formalist or an instrumentalist. We don't discover math, we invent it. It's strictly a human invention. And he marveled at how mathematical systems supposedly just invented for no good reason by humans fiddling with numbers could then be later used to actually describe reality. And he thought this was astonishing, and he literally calls it in this article a miracle, despite the fact that he was an atheist, and that we should be grateful for it. I don't know to who. But, so he considered, this, he considered this unreasonable and marvelous, but it isn't if you consider God, among other things, a great mathematician. And again, I go in more detail in the book. But here's two of the most famous equations in the, in the history of equations. Uh, the, gravitational con- the gravitational equation here by Newton and then uh, E equals mc squared. The matter, matter and energy equivalency by Einstein. Okay, so in conclusion... Purpose and design are the result of the actions of an intelligent designer. The universe as a whole and living things within the universe do exhibit characteristics (coughs) of purposes and design, as shown by the fine-tuning of the universe, irreducible complexity in cellular systems, genetic information... Um, Yes, the failure of chance and necessity to explain the origin of life and the mathematical structure of the universe. Therefore, the best explanation for all of this is that the purpose and design in the universe are the result of an intelligent agent or designer, which is God. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, next week, we will, uh, we'll get to the moral argument. That's everybody's favorite argument. We'll talk about how good and bad we are.